Hello, John Terrell here. Today we've got part one of my review of Adventures in Forgotten Realms, MTGAFR, the upcoming Dungeons and Dragons magic set. We'll be talking about the cards that I'm including in and excluding from my higher powered cube, Aleasis, my 450 card vintage unpowered cube. Welcome to Cultic Cube, where we cube religiously. We make you better at cube and make your cube better. So today, if you'll indulge me, we'll have a more conversational, freeform chat about what I'm thinking and feeling about the AFR cards that Watsi's offered us. So we're going to be talking about cards that I'm adding to Aleasis. This is my vintage unpowered cube. Uh, it's a high power, high octane environment, but it doesn't have the power nine or some of the other most broken cards in the history of magic, but it does have a lot of broken cards in it. So we're looking for cards that can compete with the tinkers of the magic world. And you probably won't be terribly surprised to learn that, in my opinion, AFR doesn't offer an incredible number of tools uh, for the highest power level environments. So I'm adding just four cards from AFR to Aleasis. So that it wouldn't take me long to talk about these four cards. I think that most of them are pretty straightforwardly good. I would like to touch on some others, though, that have been getting a lot of buzz in the cube community, but that I'm not including in my own cube for various reasons. Uh, so we'll, we'll chat about those. In part two of the AFR review, I'll be talking about the cards I'm adding to my lower power environment called Petty Nobility. I'm adding many more cards from the set there. So that is to say, I don't think by any means that the set is just a bust. There are interesting things here. A first note is that I'm not high on the set's signature mechanics. I think that all of these mechanics are too parasitic or involve a bunch of rules baggage that I'm myself not particularly interested in pursuing. So what are these? There's venture into the dungeon, exploration of the dungeon mechanic, and then there's the treasure creation and use mechanic. There are cards that gain additional bonuses when they're cast using mana that's created from treasure tokens. And then the other big one is rolling dice, often a d20, but you know, there are cards that call for rolling different dice, d8s and things. Anyway, I personally strongly dislike die rolling. It just adds additional variance that I don't think is particularly interesting or, or fun. There's enough variance in magic as it is, which is great. It's part of the game. I don't love the die rolling variance myself. You may well have heard me talk about the fact that I run Sword of Dungeons and Dragons in Aleasis, and that calls for a die roll. However, <laughs> my group has eroded the card such that we've taken a sharpie to the die rolling bit. When we play that card, nobody rolls any d20s. Anyway, die rolling not for me either. So in the following list of cards, you're not going to see many, if any, cards that say venture into the dungeon or roll a die or do fancy things with treasure. But that's not to say that those may not be of interest to you. If they sound awesome to you, that's great. Have at it. But I'm afraid I won't be talking about those classes of cards myself. Okay, so let's get into the cards that we are adding to Aleasis. As I said earlier, there's four of them. Two of them are lands, but let's start with the non-land cards. So first is Portable Hole. Portable Hole is an uncommon. It's a single white pip uh, for an artifact. When Portable Hole enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent an opponent controls. 
with mana value 2 or less until Portable Hole leaves the battlefield. So this card is really quite straightforward. It's extremely inexpensive interaction. So this is going to be premium interaction, particularly in the early game, but you're going to be able to find targets for this at most points of the game, I would imagine. In some senses, it's sort of a catch-all, right? It's not limited to hitting creatures. It's a non-land permanent that costs two or less. That's pretty great. I think that this card is going to be great in my environment. I could see how it could be worse elsewhere. So reasons that it might be worse include if one's environment has a great deal of shatter effects. And artifacts do tend to be easier to blow up than enchantments. So there's that. I mean, I make that note just because this effect in white is usually tacked onto an enchantment, right? Like an oblivion ring sort of thing. Um, this is unusual for being a white artifact that exiles. Also, my environment is rather lean. There are lots of aggressive decks that have quite low curves. If your environment tends to go bigger, Portable Hole could well go down in value, of course. But cheap early interaction looks awesome. Next up, we've got a black uncommon, Power Word Kill. It's one and a black for an instant. It says destroy target non-angel, non-demon, non-devil, non-dragon creature. Okay, so that sounds like a lot of caveats there. Right? That's a whole long list of things that it doesn't hit. But what does that mean? Well, as you probably suspect, despite the wordiness of that list, this card actually doesn't miss on a lot. This card hits a lot. So I've run some numbers on various Doomblade variants and their efficacy in Alaysis. In Alaysis, I've got 179 creatures. Here, I've just counted creatures full stop. I haven't counted token producing spells or spells that turn other permanents into creatures or any of that kind of stuff. Okay, so here's the rundown. Doomblade misses on 30 of 179 creatures. That represents 17% of the creatures in the cube, where Doomblade fails. Ultimate Price misses on 24 creatures, which is 13%. Cast Down misses on just one fewer, so it misses on 23 creatures, which is also 13%. Go for the Throat misses on 16, which is 9%. Here we're doing about twice as well as Doomblade. Although I suppose they're definitely going to be more artifact tokens than black tokens in general. Okay, power word kill, you guys. Misses on six creatures. That's 3% of the creatures in the cube. Six. There are only six misses in the entire cube. That's pretty remarkable. So again, your mileage may vary, of course. Maybe you've got angel tribal in the cube or something. I don't know. In which case, this thing will plummet in value. But I suspect if you go through and perform a similar exercise in your own cube, if your cube looks anything like mine, Power Word Kill is excellent and may well be the best of the Doomblade variants. Okay, let's talk lands now. So we've got a cycle of five rare monocolored creature lands. So let's talk about the two that I am adding, and then we can use this as a segue into the cards that I'm not adding to the cube but would like to discuss, and we'll, we'll chat about those other lands. So firstly, Cave of the Frost Dragon. This is a rare land. If you control two or more other lands, Cave of the Frost Dragon enters the battlefield tapped. It's got two abilities, tap to add a white mana, or pay four in a white, and Cave of the Frost Dragon becomes a 3-4 white dragon creature with flying until the end of the turn. It's still a land. This card bears obvious comparison to Celestial Colonnade. Activation cost is in fact the same, 
although Celestial Colonnade has Vigilance, so that allows you to tap it for mana after you've attacked with it, of course. So that sort of gives you a discount on it. You end up with a creature that has flying in both cases. The stats are worse, though, on this than on Celestial Colonnade, of course. This is a 3-4 instead of a 4-4. But there's some big upsides to this thing, too. It's just one color, right? Here's a mono... this is a monocolored land. Also, it has the potential to enter untapped, unlike Celestial Colonnade. That's a big game, too. So yes, this thing is a little expensive to activate. The body's not amazing, although 3-4 is, you know, 3-4 flyer, that's not bad. It does seem key that it has 4 toughness instead of 3. It's not the easiest thing in the world to kill. It's going to miss Bolt and Syrian Spear and that kind of thing. That's great. Here's a monocolored creature land that can just go in any deck. This is good in the same way that the MDFC are good, as we've talked about at length in the last year or so. Here's a spell that occupies a land slot. If you draft this card, you stick it in your deck. This is a card that's not contributing to the 23 cards, give or take, that are in the spells slot that you're putting in your deck. Drafting lands is awesome. Every land that you draft is unlocking an additional pick that's going into your main deck instead of just rotting away in your sideboard. So here's a land that can be a 3-4 flyer. Here's a land, by the by, that can go in an aggressive deck, particularly since this has the ability of entering untapped. Its value goes way up in aggressive decks. You don't have to be in exactly white-blue, which is very often going to be control colors in order to put this in the deck, so you can stick this in your white weenie deck and be happy, or in your control deck, right? Anyway, I think this is an excellent card. I think it's the best of the cycle. The next card in the cycle that I'm adding to Elasis, and in fact the final card I'm adding to Elasis, is Den of the Bugbear. This is a rare land. If you control two or more other lands, Den of the Bugbear enters the battlefield tap. It has tap to add a red mana. And then it has three in a red. Until end of turn, Den of the Bugbear becomes a 3-2 red goblin creature with... Whenever this creature attacks, create a 1-1 red goblin creature token that's tapped and attacking. It's still a land. So here we've got a little rabble land. Of course this thing's not nearly as good as Rabble Master in many senses, but this is great insurance for the aggressive red deck, I think. So you do have to activate this thing and attack. You can potentially be doing things like you activate this thing and when they go to block it, you shock their blocker and your den of the bugbear survives and now you've got a 1-1. That's fine, but that's actually quite a mana commitment to be doing those sorts of shenanigans. You need mana and you need cards to be doing that kind of thing. For me, the most likely use case for den of the bugbear being activated is you're playing an aggressive red deck, your opponent wraths the board, now you've got a clean board, but you've got Den of the Bugbear on the battlefield, so next turn you activate it and you start rebuilding your board. I think this card is probably totally fine. I'm anxious to give it a whirl. I think it's got potential as a little bit of Wrath Insurance, and as a kind of free spell that you're sticking in your deck by virtue of it being a land. Alright. Let's move on to those cards that I'm not putting in my cube. So to continue that cycle of lands, there are of course three more of them. There's Hall of the Storm Giants. 
I won't read you the text on all these, but this one is the one that taps for blue. You can pay six and it becomes a seven, seven blue giant creature with ward three. There's Hive of the Eye Tyrant. It taps for black and you can pay three and a black to turn it into a three, three black beholder creature with menace and some other trinket text on it. Whenever this creature attacks, exile target card from defending player's graveyard. And then finally, we've got Lair of the Hydra. Taps for green. You can spend X and green, and it becomes an XX green Hydra creature. Okay, all of these I think are totally fine, in as much as I think that creature lands are good as a general rule. It's sort of hard to make them bad. Or maybe it's not hard to make them bad, but I think all of these are totally fine, totally serviceable. Stick them in your cube and try them. Why not? For me, probably the next best among these is the black one, since it has evasion in the form of menace. So that seems good. And then it can hate on reanimator strategies and that kind of thing, I guess. If I were testing another one, that'd be the next one I would stick in. I'm not that high on the 3-3 menace, though. It's not getting me that excited. I recognize the red one is just a 3-2, but it's producing bodies and expanding my board. Seems better. I think probably the next best among these is the green one. It turns into this Hydra. You know, if this thing had Trample, then this would be in much more serious conversation for me. Imagine you pay two into Lair of the Hydra. So you have to pay green, and then you have X equals one. So now you've got yourself a 1-1, one, one, and then you turn that 1-1 one, one sideways to attack. You know, that's effectively removing the possibility of creating another mana from your mana pool. So what I'm getting at is to make a 1-1 one, one takes three mana. You put four mana into it, and you get a grizzly bear. Lair of the Hydra isn't the worst thing in the world, but the rate isn't amazing. But you could still make a great big monster with it if you've got infinite mana. And then the final one is Hall of the Storm Giants. You're paying six and tapping this thing when you attack. So you're paying seven to make a seven, seven blue giant that is like hard for them to doom blade. I don't know. This thing seems big and dorky and expensive and I'm not in it for Hall of the Storm Giants. Other cards, all right, let's talk about the Demi Lich next. The Demi Lich is a mythic. It costs, are you all ready for this? It costs blue, 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 blue. That's four blue mana pips for a creature, Skeleton Wizard, and it's a 4-3. So that already sounds outrageous, but the text box is cool. This spell costs one blue mana less to cast for each instant and sorcery spell you've cast this turn. Whenever Demi-Lich attacks, exile up to one target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard. Copy it. You may cast that copy. And then finally it says you may cast Demi-Lich from your graveyard by exiling four instants and or sorcery cards from your graveyard in addition to paying its other costs. So this card, wow, I mean, the text box is exciting, right? Like all, <laughs> every single line of text there sounds great. But obviously the rate on the card isn't that impressive in lots of other ways. So blue, 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 blue is crazy, right? So Aleasis should be one of the better environments for Demi-Lich. Aleasis has a ton of cantrips, as I'm sure you know, since I'm always banging on about cantrips and cycling and Xerox theory. So you have the opportunity to pick up plenty of versions of Preordain and Opt and Ponder and also two mana variants and so on. Nevertheless, though, it's still quite an ask to go 
I mean, imagine the turn where you play Preordain and then you play Opt. And so now you've paid two spells, so it costs two blue less to cast Demi-Lich. That's cool, although you've already spent two blue, right? Now you need to spend another blue and blue to cast Demi-Lich. This is possible. This is a thing that could be done, but this scenario demands that you've got three pretty specific cards and that you've got four blue mana sources. This is a lot of hoops to jump through. And then once you've cast the thing, it doesn't actually do anything. It just sits there. Uh, and if it just eats removal, then you've jumped through a whole bunch of hoops probably in order to get this on the field and then it didn't get to do its cool stuff because it's an attack trigger that allows you to exile the instant or sorcery and flash it back. So Demi-Lich, I'm personally kind of down on it, but I don't think it's by any means crazy to test the card, especially if you've got an environment that's got a lot of cheap spells. I guess one other note about Demi-Lich is there's a deck that wants this card, and that deck is the incredibly blue-heavy, spells-heavy deck, right? That's probably like a blue-red spell-slinger sort of thing. Cultic Cube is supported by you. I have a Patreon with all sorts of cool perks such as collections of art assets from my videos, beautifully formatted cube articles. Also, I've got affiliate relationships with TCG Player, Inked Gaming, and Amazon. Purchases made via my affiliate links, which you can find in the video description, will benefit me at no additional cost to you. Your support means the world to me. It allows me to continue doing what I love, which is talking about cube. So thank you. All right, let's move on to the red ones. We've got Burning Hands. This is an uncommon. It's one in a red for an instant. Burning Hands deals two damage to target creature or planeswalker. If that permanent is green, Burning Hands deals six damage instead. So there's a whole cycle of these color-hating cards. Our first note is just that these color-hating cards irk me. <laughs> For similar reasons as color protection irks me and like the swords of X and Y irk me. I don't love random hate on X percent of the field that you'll be playing against. And I don't like cards that are otherwise sideboard cards and then you pull them out and then, you know, they become A pluses against a color. So I'm predisposed not to like this cycle of cards. Burning Hands is, to my recollection, among the best of these. So the fail case is it's this two mana shock, but it only hits creatures and planeswalkers, right? Which is, you know, okay. So two mana to deal two damage to a creature or planeswalker. If the thing is green though, oh my goodness, it does six damage instead. And that's a big game. That's a really big game. Two mana instant deal six damage, sign me up. So I think that the fail case isn't terrible. You know, this isn't like a totally embarrassing card to have in the deck. And then some percentage of the time, oh boy, the card gets like way better than it is otherwise. I don't think this card is awful. It may be that other cards in the cycle are good as well. By all means, try it out if this seems like your thing. Not my thing though. And if numbers had been tweaked such that this did a better approximation of a shock, I mean, if this were just a red mana to deal two, even to target creature or planeswalker, that's fine. And then it did like way more damage to green, you know, it did five to a green permanent or something. I'd be into the card, is all I'm trying to say. Okay, Inferno of the Star Mounts. It's a crazy name. This is a dragon. It is a mythic. It's four red red for a legendary creature. 
dragon. It's a 6-6. Six, six. It can't be countered, okay. It's got flying, it's got haste, and it's got fire breathing. You can pay a red mana, Inferno of the Star Mounts gets plus one, plus O oh until end of the turn. And whenever its power becomes 20 this way, it deals 20 damage to any target. That's cool, I guess. You can just assassinate people, although, you know, you, you actually have to be spending the mana to do it, right? They want to make sure that you don't just start suiting it up with equipments or auras, and then additionally, you pump some mana into it. I think this card is good if you're in the market for six mana red finisher. I think there's a conversation to be had about how this stacks up against Inferno Titan, and in some ways, it sort of embarrasses Inferno Titan. I mean, at least in the sense that it's got evasion and it's got haste. All of that's really good. However, Inferno Titan has the enters the battlefield trigger and you get that arc lightning value even if Titan eats removal immediately. I still think Titan's probably the better card, but this has a lot to recommend it. So if you're looking for another big finisher in red, this is definitely a thing to look at. I want to give a shout out though to Emissary of Grudges as well. I don't run that card anymore, but I did for a long time and I like it. Let me read you the card. Emissary of Grudges. This is five and a red for a creature, a Freet. It's a six five. It's got flying, it's got haste. This sounds familiar. It sounds like our new friend. It's got a bunch of commander specific text that we don't care about, but I'll cut to the chase. When an opponent casts a spell targeting you or a permanent you control, you can choose new targets for that spell or ability. You can only do this one time. So when opponent goes to Doomblade Emissary of Grudges, one time it's got this amazing shield that the opponent has to break through. Better than a shield, right? Because it allows you to redirect the spell and kill one of their things. This thing's super hard to get rid of. Like this card, you resolve this card, it either kills them or they have to jump through some hoops to get rid of this thing. They have to have a Doom Blade. You redirect that Doom Blade and kill something of theirs and then they have to have another Doom Blade, right? So killing this thing is often a three for one proposition. That's a lot of value. And it's a hasty, evasive creature. So I think this card is very good. I still like Inferno Titan better than Emissary of Grudges, but very good. So all that is to say, I think that this new dragon is cool. It's a totally reasonable card. You should by all means try it out if it's appealing to you and if you're looking for another big red thing. Next, we've got Werewolf Pack Leader. This thing is green green. It's a rare. For a creature, human werewolf, it's a 3-3. Whenever Werewolf Pack Leader attacks, if you attacked with creatures with total power 6 or greater, this combat, draw a card. And it has the ability for 3 and a green. Until end of turn, Werewolf Pack Leader has a base power and toughness of 5-3. It gains trample, and it isn't a human. That's sweet. For 4 mana, you can pump this guy's power by 2 and give it trample. That's a cool thing. And then, of course, you're very near to turning on the um, pack tactics, the thing that cares about the power six, because you're up to power five now. So you just need another thing attacking. I think Werewolf Pack Leader is a super cool card. It's an exciting card for continuing to push green aggressive strategies, which get better and better. It's been received wisdom for years in Cube that you're a fool to try green aggro, right? Now, of course, there's always been ways of making it work. You can do whatever you want in cube, and you can find ways of making making things functional. 
especially since you're scoped in an environment around the things that you want to make functional. Anyway, green aggro getting more and more legit. And we've talked a lot on this channel about green mid-range strategies and how to push those in ways that are effective. I've got that whole discussion of what I called British racing green in the article that I wrote for Watsi. Werewolf pack leader fits brilliantly into that milieu. If I were uh, revisiting the cultic cube, the cube that appeared on MTGO, I would totally put werewolf pack leader in there. I think this card is great if you're pushing really lean and fast green mid-range. If you're pushing that kind of thing, stick werewolf pack leader in there. I think it's great. It's a two mana three three that does a, some other things. You know, that's cool. So I don't want to poo-poo this card at all. I think it's a sweet card. I like that it exists. It's just not the card for Elasis um, because I'm not really supporting that deck in Elasis. Next up, we've got a gold card, Minsk Beloved Ranger. This thing's a mythic. It costs Naya, costs red, green, white. Legendary creature, human ranger, it's a 3-3. When Minsk Beloved Ranger enters the battlefield, create Boo, a legendary 1-1 red hamster creature token with trample and haste. Cool, okay. So, you know, we've got a blade splicer here or an attended knight or something. Okay, but Minsk has an ability. You can pay X until end of turn, target creature you control has base power and toughness of XX and becomes a giant in addition to its other types. Activate only as a sorcery. This card, I think, is probably not bad. I mean, the rate for growing your hamster is good. You don't have to grow your hamster. You can grow anything that you want. That's cool. Minsk can even grow himself if he'd like. My friend and colleague Ryan Sachs pointed out that Minsk can also act as a sack outlet. That's cute um, because you could pay X equals zero to kill one of your own things if you're in it for Naya aristocrats somehow. That's a minor thing, but it's a cute thing. So Minsk, I think, is a totally fine card, except that it costs Naya to cast this card. So you all know how I feel about gold cards. I have an allergy to gold cards. <laughs> you know, I run them. I just tend to have rather few in my environment. Although I also curate, you know, Ravnica remastered environments that goes hard into gold. But in my more traditional environments like Elasis, not a ton of gold cards. And gold cards that are three colors, boy, they have to be really special for me to be interested in them. So Minsk is just not for me, but I want to underline that I don't think it's a bad card. Maybe he has a home in your environment. All right, final card I want to touch on is an artifact, Hand of Vecna. It costs three generic mana. It's a rare, legendary artifact equipment. At the beginning of combat on your turn, equipped creature, or a creature you control named Vecna, that's probably not relevant. Anyway, equipped creature you control gets plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is the number of cards in your hand. So you can equip by paying one life for each card in your hand, or you can equip for two generic mana. This is a card that was brought to my attention by White Wolf 123 WTWLF123. He's been writing set reviews for Cube on MTG Salvation for many years now. White Wolf made the interesting comparison between this card and 
Grafted War Gear. Grafted War Gear is a great aggressive equipment. I mean, really, one of the best aggressive equipment. And it's a card that's an extraordinarily high pick for me anyway, right? I mean, it's pack one, pick one material in Alaysis. Pack one, pick one material in lots of environments, I think. So as White Wolf points out, here's a card that you can cast for three mana and like Grafted War Gear equip immediately, right? At the cost of some life, but you're an aggro deck, you don't care about that. Also, if Grafted War Gear becomes unattached from a creature, of course the creature dies. That's a drawback. That's not much of a drawback though, honestly, right? I don't know, maybe it is for you, but for me that's it's like a minor nuisance that comes up every every now and again when the Grafted War Gear gets shattered, but not often that big a thing. But anyway, that's not a thing at all with Hand of Vecna, right? That's cool. So I think this card's interesting. I think this card is worth trying if you're interested in trying it. I'm, a, I'm still a little dubious about this card because I can see that it can pile on a whole bunch of damage. It's going to do that, though, when you have this in your opener. This is a card that's a, often going to be a terrible top deck. We're talking about aggro decks here. Aggro decks tend to want to spend mana and spend cards. They're not husbanding their resources like a control deck might and jealously hoarding their cards, right? But, I mean, you're not playing Hand of Vecna in that control deck that's jealously guarding its cards. So the cards in hand bonus is going to get slimmer and slimmer really quite rapidly in most aggro decks. Now, granted, when you do have this card in play, you're going to plan around it and you're going to be trying to hold cards and not play out your lands and so on in order to maintain the bonus. So that's cool. And that is interesting, right? I mean, it makes gives you more decisions to make and pros and cons to weigh. That's a cool thing about the card. More decision points. I like that. But nevertheless, the card's going to be a bad top deck. The card makes mulligans even more punishing, right? So even if you do the card in your opener, but you've mulled down to five or something, card gets worse. Also, the, your creature only gets the plus X plus X bonus at the beginning of combat on your turn. It seems like a major strike against it as well. Granted, we're, we want to be turning our creatures sideways in our aggro decks, but it's kind of weak that we lose the bonus on the opponent's turn. For me, the card's an interesting card. The card could represent a lot of damage, but there's a lot of variance built into this card. It's a swingy card whose value plummets after the first few turns of the game. Oh, we're not done. Sorry, I'm wrong. I had some requests. I asked on Twitter what other cards you all might like to hear me talk about a little bit. So I got a request from at ImpSeal. I had some other people seconding and thirding it. So at any rate, let's talk about this card. Ebon Death, Draco Lich. This is a mythic. It's two black black for a legendary creature zombie dragon. That's cool. It's a zombie dragon. It's a 5-2. It's got flash. That's cool. Got flying. Ebon Death enters the battlefield tapped. Oof, that's not great. And it's got recursion. You may cast Ebon Death from your graveyard if a creature not named Ebon Death Draco Lich died this turn. It's got something like morbid for recursion, although it itself can't have died. So it's not morbid. Anyway, firstly, the card's going to be better with a self-sacrifice theme, right? So that one can turn on morbid at will. And in Alaysis, I don't have an aristocrats theme or a self-sacrifice theme. That's it can be done, but it's not it's not really a thing. The stats are cool. I mean, a 5-2 flyer, that's sweet 
for four. With flash, I mean, that's big game, right? But the entering tapped is a big drawback. So of course you can flash it in on your opponent's end step and then untap with it and swing. And so that it like sort of has haste. That's cool, but it's a real sadness that you can't flash this thing in and block. You can't even not flash this thing in and block, um, which is to say you can't play this on your turn and then be able to block with it on your opponent's attacks, right? Because it just enters the battlefield tap whether it gets flashed in or not. I don't love that. What else? The recursion is cool and recursion is powerful. I like it. However, here's this four mana recursive card like, how likely is it that you're binning this thing? Are you running this in a reanimator deck and trying to bin it? No. What you're actively trying to bin is something better. Although maybe you can bin this for free somehow, and that's nice. But then still, I mean, again, you're not trying to reanimate this thing either, right? But it does recur from the yard, so that's sweet. But you still have to pay the four mana, and it still has to be true that something has died. So I'm not just super duper excited about this card. I'm just, I'm trying to imagine the deck that I'm putting Evan Death in and being excited. But you should by all means test it and tell me how you like it. And if you are interested in self-sacrifice stuff, then all the more reason to test it. So that's all I have for you for AFR discussion vis-a-vis -vis my higher powered format. Next time we'll chat about my lower powered format where we're adding a bunch of cards. I don't remember how many, 15 maybe? So let's keep hanging out and chatting cube. Hello, John Terrell here. We're diving into part two of my Adventures in the Forgotten Realms review for MTG Cube. I'll be talking about cards suitable for my lower power environment in this installment. Welcome to Cultic Cube, where we cube religiously. We make you better at cube, and make your cube better. In part one of my AFR review, we talked about the cards that are and are not going into Aleasis, my higher powered environment. You may recall that there are only four cards from the set that could break into that cube. There's a broader swath of cards, though, that are going into this lower-powered environment. So a word about the environment first. The cube that I'll be discussing today is called Petty Nobility. It's a 450-card Master's Power Level cube. It's highly synergistic, a Jenny and Johnny sort of environment. It is slower than my Vintage Unpowered environment. We give players time to set up their sweet engines and go off. There are no planeswalkers at all here. We don't have a ton of stone cold bombs. The idea is that the individual card doesn't produce insane amounts of value, but that cards working in conjunction with each other do. Archetypes supported include blink, aristocrats, plus one plus one counters, life gain matters, tokens and go wide, and spells matter. So card number one is Claret Class. This is an uncommon for a single white mana pip. It's an enchantment with a new subtype, class. So these new class enchantments are a cool new spin on the level up cards that you will doubtless remember from Rise of the Eldrazi, such as Student of Warfare, Enclave Cryptologist, Jiraga Tree Speaker. So like with the level up cards, you can spend mana to level up these cards, and you can only level the classes at sorcery speed. All right, so let's look at Cleric Class. So when you cast it for a single white pip, it hits the field at level one, which says, if you would gain life, you gain that much life plus one instead. 
Level 2 costs 3 and a white. Whenever you gain life, put a plus 1 plus 1 counter on target creature you control. And then finally level 3 costs 4 and a white. When this class becomes level 3, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. You gain life equal to its toughness. Now, the classes retain all of their previous abilities as they level up, so that means that in fact you'll gain life equal to its toughness plus one, and you'll get to put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control when level three goes off. For me, I kind of like it. I don't think that the card is amazing, but I like that in my environment it's promoting not only the Life Matters deck, but also the plus one plus one counters deck. And those two very often bridge in this environment. An initial question if you're contemplating adding this card is simply whether level one is useful to you. The format has cards that do this sort of thing already, notably Angel of Vitality, I suppose, which is a three mana creature that has this text on it. It's a 2-2 flyer, so it's great that that's on a body. I think that this text is kind of fine. Granted, this card doesn't do anything by itself, but this particular format is slow enough that there's not just a wealth of things to do on turn one. You probably won't be punished too hard by spending your first turn playing an engine piece that doesn't affect the board in any way. You're just not going to get run over that quickly, and you're setting yourself up to gain extra life anyway, right? So the aggro deck is going to have a harder time pressuring you, provided you do find ways of gaining life. In green, we have been running for a long time hardened scales. That's a single green mana for an enchantment that says if one or more plus one plus one counters would be put on a creature you control, that many plus one plus one plus one counters are put on it instead. So you get to add an additional plus one plus one counter. So here's a card with a pretty similar effect and a pretty similar mana cost. Hardened Scales is a good card in the counters deck. So I think this is a fine addition to the life gain deck. Now, of course, it does other things as well. Four is rather a steep cost to attain level two here, but I do like that its effect happens whenever you gain life. So once we hit level two, whenever you gain life, you get to put a counter on something, right? A plus one, plus one counter on something. Again, this is a familiar effect. We've got cards like Cradle of Vitality in the cube. It's a four mana enchantment that says whenever you gain life, you may pay one in a white, and if you do, put a plus one plus one counter on target creature for each one life you've gained. Cleric class is quietly a kind of exciting card for this particular format. If you don't care at all about life gain, then, you know, I hope you fast forwarded through the past few minutes of discussion. All right, let's move on. Priest of Ancient Lore. This is a common. It's a creature, dwarf cleric, for two and a white. It's a two one. When Priest of Ancient Lore enters the battlefield, you gain one life and you draw a card. So we can compare this dwarf to Thraben Inspector, of course. Thraben Inspector costs a single white for a 1-2 and it investigates. So you get the whole Priest of Ancient Lore package for the same cost for three total mana. You get a similar sized body, but you get to do it on an installment plan with Thraben Inspector. Priest of Ancient Lore gains you an additional life, which may not be super relevant, but there is this life gain deck, of course, so that is that is nice. Cloud Conseer is another card to which we might compare Priest of Ancient Lore. That card from M20 is two and a blue for a 2-1 flyer, and when Cloud Conseer enters the battlefield, draw a card. I think Cloud Conseer is really quite excellent. Three mana replaces itself, you get a 2-1 evasive creature. 
Priest of Ancient Lore is substantially worse than Cloud Conseer for not having evasion. But there's a blink deck as well, so it's nice that you get these two effects on ETB. So this is a fine little package, all said. On balance, Threeben Inspector is a much better card for being a one-mana play. It's extraordinarily important. Threeben Inspector is a third of the cost of Priest of Ancient Lore. You can still do the blink stuff with Threeben Inspector. I think this guy is not an insane card by any means, but I'm kind of excited that White gets a tool that just replaces itself on ETB like this which is a powerful thing, even if nobody's getting terribly excited about a 2-1 for 3 mana. Next up, we've got Teleportation Circle. This is a rare enchantment, costs 3 and a white. At the beginning of your end step, exile up to one target artifact or creature you control, then return that card to the battlefield under its owner's control. So here we've got kind of a slick upgrade to Conjurer's Closet, which is a 5 mana artifact that's got really quite similar text, although you can't blink artifacts with it. I love that we get this card. It's still hard to find a density of good, repeatable blink effects to put in one's deck, let alone to put in one's cube. You may recall from my Modern Horizons 2 review that one slight sadness I had was that we didn't get more blink support in MH2, but as we said, it's hard to complain because MH1 did have a bunch of toys for us, so that's cool. Anyway, I'm happy that we, that we get a little toy here. I'm just going to get rid of Crystal Shard now. That card has been my pitiful blink enabler that I always try to comfort myself by saying the Crystal Shard can do other stuff and really annoy the opponent by bouncing their stuff. It just it, it doesn't work out the way you want it to. I mean, it's a nuisance more than anything else. Crystal Shard here, I guess I'll, I'll read it. You probably know the card. It's from Mirrodin. It's three generic mana for an artifact. You can spend three generic mana and tap this artifact, or you can spend a single blue and tap this artifact, and then you return target creature to its owner's hand unless its controller pays one generic mana. So you can return your own stuff to hand this way and then replay it. You gotta spend the mana to replay it though, right? So it's not you're not like really blinking stuff, you're just bouncing your own stuff and replaying it and taking this tempo hit in order to accrue some other kind of advantage. You can also use this more aggressively against your opponent's creatures. They have to hold up a mana, right, to prevent you from bouncing their thing. A nuisance, but really largely a nuisance, because where the aggressive Crystal Shard is good is in a deck that's trying to apply pressure. And why are you putting a three mana do nothing artifact in your, <laughs> you know, in your aggressive deck? Anyway, we're cutting it from this environment now. Teleportation circle it is. Okay, onto blue. You find the villain's lair. This is a common. It's one blue blue for an instant. Choose one counter target spell or draw two cards, then discard two cards. We have the inevitable cancel variant of the set. In this environment, I like having a few cancels. This is a designedly slower environment. I don't want the counter magic to be super, super efficient. I don't want it to be trivially easy to break up opponents combo-y stuff they're trying to assemble. So I do have some three mana counters in here already. Dissipate, Scatter to the Winds, Supreme Will, Sage's Dowsing. You find the Villain's Lair is a card that looks quite similar in some senses to Neutralize, which was the cancel variant from Ikoria that's, uh, that has Cycling 2. So this has the card replacement mode just as Neutralize does, but whereas Neutralize literally replaces itself for two generic mana, you find the Villain's Lair has the same casting cost, but then it lets you draw two, discard two. 
Draw two, discard two is more powerful on average than draw one is. It's circumstance dependent, of course, but it's more expensive to do the draw two, discard two thing. I like the spin on this effect, and I really like these counter spells. Like neutralize, I think, is wonderful for having the cycling mode. I ran it in Aleasis, by the by, where I don't run many three mana counters at all. Um, apart from that, it's like Supreme Will which also <laughs> replaces itself, right? Or it's got that mode whereby it can replace itself. So you find the villain's lair. This is, this is a nice addition to that growing stable of counter magic that can cycle. There are potentially other upsides too, of course. Discarding two could be extremely useful for strategies that care about the graveyard. Okay, that was the only blue card. Let's move on to black. Check for traps. This is an uncommon for one and a black. It's a sorcery. Target opponent reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from it. Exile that card. If an instant or a card with flash is exiled this way, they lose one life. Otherwise, you lose one life. I don't have a ton to say about this card. I think it's just good. It looks extremely similar to Agonizing Remorse from Theros Beyond Death. Agonizing Remorse has some additional upside. Agonizing Remorse is probably on balance the better card. I like having this effect at two mana, and I'm happy to have a couple of versions of this. In Petty Nobility, I don't want Inquisition of Kozilek or Duress or certainly Thoughtseize, but the two mana version is just a step slower and is still excellent and quite useful. Next black card is Deadly Dispute. It's a common for one and a black. It's an instant. As an additional cost to cast this spell, sacrifice an artifact or creature, Draw two cards and create a treasure token. This card is a more expensive version of cards already in the cube, like Village Rites, which costs just black for an instant, and you sack a creature and draw two cards. Deadly Dispute is a new spin on Alter's Reap, which you may remember from Innistrad. It does about the same thing, although it doesn't create a treasure, and you can't sacrifice artifacts to it. I'm not running Alter's Reap in the cube, I'm running an upgraded version, Village Rites, which costs a single black mana pip to do Alter's Reap. Deadly Dispute is worse than Village Rites, but quite similar, especially since it repays you with a treasure token. So I don't know, I don't think this card is super amazing, but I kind of like that it exists, and you know, I'm in it for sack outlets, although one-shot self-sacrifice is not the greatest thing in the world. Alright, next we've got Feign Death. It's a common, a single black mana pip for an instant that says, until end of turn, target creature gains. When this creature dies, return it to the battlefield tapped under its owner's control with a plus one, plus one counter on it. So this card is of course a modest upgrade to Undying Evil from Dark Ascension, which is an instant for a single black mana that gives target creature Undying until end of turn. And Undyne, you'll recall, says when it dies, if it had no plus one, plus one counters on it, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a plus one, plus one counter on it. The reason that this is better, well, this is better and worse, I guess. Let's start with why it's worse. The reason it's worse is Feign Death has the creature return to the battlefield tapped. The reason it's better, however, is that it doesn't care if the creature had plus one, plus one counters on it already. In this format, there's a plus one, plus one counters deck. So counters, they're just running rampant. You can be picking up counters pretty easily without even totally embracing the strategy. I, you know, Undying Evil wasn't in the cube to begin with. It's not like I'm super excited that this is an upgrade to that card. 
But I think it's kind of a cool, a cool way of regenerating a creature unexpectedly. And it adds a counter, so that's a nice thing. You could care about that. Cultic Cube is supported by you. Check out my Patreon page that has all sorts of cool perks for supporters, as well as resources for everyone to freely access. I have affiliate relationships with TCG Player, Inked Gaming, and Amazon. If you're gearing up to make your AFR purchases, and you're considering doing so through TCG Player, follow my affiliate link in the video description. Make your purchases as usual. Your purchase won't cost you a dime more than it would otherwise, but you'll be helping to support this channel. Thank you for your support. Onward to red. Battlecry Goblin. This is an uncommon for one and a red. Creature, goblin. Kind of wish it had more on the type line there. I wish it were a goblin warrior, for instance. But that's fine. It's a goblin. It doesn't have a job. It just goblins. This is a grizzly bear. It's a 2-2 two, two for 2. It has an activated ability and a triggered ability, however. So, activated ability. You can pay 1 and a red. Goblins you control get plus 1, plus 0, oh, and gain haste until end of turn. And then the triggered ability it says, whenever battle cry goblin attacks, if you attacked with creatures with a total power 6 or greater this combat, create a 1-1 one, one red goblin creature token that's tapped and attacking. So this goblin is doing a wonky and expensive Rabble Master impression. That's okay that it's wonky and expensive for me because Rabble Master does not belong in this format. <laughs> you know, the whole series of Rabble Master cards are really quite premium, aggressive red, three drops. And they're great for Elasis, but I'm definitely not sticking them in Petty Nobility. This guy, though, is a grizzly bear that then does additional stuff. So I kind of like the whole package here. It's not an insane card. I think it's tuned well for the environment that I want to put the goblin in. It unlocks this goblin tribal that doesn't have to be a thing. There's no goblin tribal in the format, but there's some number of goblins running around, and they're running around in red, as you might expect. There are also goblin tokens, right, that can be created in various ways. So that's fine. So this thing could be a little goblin lord, incidentally, without doing a whole bunch of work. It's nice that this card is sort of a modal card in as much as it can be cast as a grizzly bear for two. However, if you don't have anything else to be doing with your mana, you can cast this thing for four and then it's a 3-2 haste. I mean, a 3-2 haste for four isn't an insane card, but if you've got nothing better to do, then, you know, 3-2 haste for four is better than a 2-2 two -two for two and not spending the rest of that mana. This is sort of wonky fire breathing. You can pay for this activated ability as many times as you'd like. So you can pump power multiple times. That's nice. And then it does create a little token and help you go wide. A couple of little notes about this thing that may not be obvious on first reading it. At least they weren't necessarily to me. The triggered ability says whenever this thing attacks, if you attacked with creatures with a total power of six or greater this combat, then you create a 1-1 one, one red goblin creature token that's tapped and attacking. So I'm rereading that because what I want to point out is that if you have to use the goblin's activated ability to get the team up to six power, then it's going to create this 1-1 one, one red goblin that doesn't get the plus one plus zero because you've already given your goblins the plus one plus zero. So the goblin that you create is just going to be a 1-1 one, one that's tapped and attacking. If you've got mana to spare though, you can do the fire breathing effect after you've created the 1-1. One, one. Or if you've already got your 6 power, then you can wait to do the pumping until after you've created the thing. 
All right, anyway, that's a fun little devil. You find some prisoners. This is an uncommon for one and a red. It's an instant. It's a modal spell. Choose one. Destroy target artifact. Or exile the top three cards of target opponent's library. Choose one of them. Until the end of your next turn, you may play that card. And you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast it. Wow, that's kind of cool. So this is an instant. It's a shatter. In Petty Nobility, I'm rather light on artifacts. So the shatter effect has less value. And something that just shatters generally isn't that exciting in the format. The second ability is cool, though. You get to spin the wheel. You get to look at the opponent's top three cards and you get to play one of them. It is play, so so you could play a land off the top if that's what makes sense to you. But also, it's super sweet that you get this Gaunty Lord of Luxury-like thing. You don't have to be on color in order to cast the card. That's nice. Also, it's sort of amazing that you get until the end of your next turn in order to cast this thing. So you don't have to wait until you've got what you hope is enough excess mana to take advantage of whatever you flip off the opponent's library. So this is a sweet little cantrip for red. <laughs> this is a card that replaces itself, but it replaces itself with your opponent's cards. That's going to be super annoying to be on the receiving end of this. <laughs> Just like Gonti is a super annoying thing. I don't know, at least I get super annoyed when I'm on the receiving end, but it's kind of fun to be doing it. And it's giving red a way of increasing the quality of its cards, giving red some card selection, and in this modal package. So you can also blow up a birthing pot or something. That's cool. Next we have, you see, a pair of goblins. This is an uncommon for two and a red. It's an instant. It's a modal spell. So option A, creatures you control get plus two plus O until the end of turn. Option B, create two one one red goblin creature tokens. I'm excited about this card too. <laughs> it, it doesn't look like much maybe, I don't know. And it's a bunch of familiar effects that we've bundled together in one choose your own adventure package. But this is great. So Trumpet Blast is an effect that is super useful in go-wide strategies. But Trumpet Blast can be like the worst top deck in the world, of course, right? When you've got nothing in play or your attacks just aren't advantageous even with the Trumpet Blast. So it's pretty neat that you don't have to Trumpet Blast with this card. It's got this other mode that's a Raise the Alarm mode. Now it's more expensive than Raise the Alarm. You're paying a tariff for this flexibility. Raise the Alarm, of course, is one in a white for an instant that says create two one one white soldier creature tokens. Here we're paying three for the same thing. This is on par with Midnight Haunting, which is an instant for two and a white that creates two flying spirit tokens that are one ones. Now, so <laughs> creating two one one red goblins much worse than creating two one one flyers. We're paying a little too much for the effect. But the point, at least for me, is we have a card here that is a Trumpet Blast in its primary mode. I keep saying Trumpet Blast, but I'm not, but <laughs> as if you know what I'm talking about, and probably many of you do, but in case you don't, Trumpet Blast, two and a red for an instant that says attacking creatures get plus two plus zero until end of turn. So the same card, effectively, right? For the same price. But when Trumpet Blast is bad, you create a couple of bodies. You expand your board. You help to build a board state in which a Trumpet Blast might in fact be good. Anyway, I really like this card. I, I think that this is a brilliant melding of um, options on a modal card. Very cool. Okay, green cards. First one is Ochre Jelly. It's X and a green. Oh, this is a rare. For a creature ooze, it's a zero, zero. 
It has trample. Ochre Jelly enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. And when Ochre Jelly dies, if it had two or more plus one plus one counters on it, create a token that's a copy of it at the beginning of the next end step. The token enters the battlefield with half that many plus one plus one counters on it, rounded down. So this card is kind of fine, I think. The rate could be better. I'd prefer if it were closer to Endless One, because you do have to pay the green mana in addition to the X. But there's a lot of value to be had in a creature that replaces itself. Anyway, and in this environment, we care about plus one plus one counters, so we can grow this thing. It has Trample. That's great. On these cards that we can make into these enormous monsters when we've got mana to burn, that's cool and all, but unless they've got some kind of evasion, they can be not super duper good. Next, we've got Prosperous Innkeeper. It's an uncommon, one in a green, for a creature, halfling citizen. It's a 1-1. When Prosperous Innkeeper enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. Whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control, you gain one life. Cool, so we've got a Soul Sister in green, joining forces with Essence Warden, which I don't actually run in the environment. Maybe I should think about running it in the environment. I like having some few enablers for life gain nonsense in green, because green does have some payoffs. Like, notably, recently we got Trudge Garden from Commander 21. Trudge Garden is two and a green for an enchantment that says whenever you gain life, you may pay two generic mana. If you do create a 4-4 green fungus beast creature token with trample, well, that's pretty big. You have to pay two, but if you can pay two, you, you know, you get a 4-4. So Prosperous Innkeeper and Trudge Garden, what a team, right? Something triggers Prosperous Innkeeper. You pay an additional two mana, you create a beast. Beast triggers Prosperous Innkeeper, you gain another life, and then that triggers Trudge Garden again, and you can pay another two, so you can keep doing that as long as you get mana to keep pumping out beasts. And Prosperous Innkeeper pays you the token, that's kind of nice. I mean, I, you know, I don't have much to do with that token necessarily, but it's cool that it does that. And then if you're in it to blink things, I hope you've got better things to blink than Prosperous Innkeeper, but if you don't, hey, you can blink this thing. This is kind of a neat little package of stuff. I like this little halfling citizen. Those are some fun new words on magic cards, right? Halfling's definitely new. I think citizen is too as well, right? Isn't this a new subtype? Okay, we've got one final card and that is a class. We started with a class, we're ending with a class. This is a rare ranger class. It's one in a green for an enchantment class. So, level one, when ranger class enters the battlefield, create a 2-2 green wolf creature token. So level two costs one and a green to level it up. Whenever you attack, put a plus one plus one counter on target attacking creature. Level three costs three and a green. You may look at the top card of your library anytime. You may cast creature spells from the top of your library. Okay, that's sweet. So this is a nice package, and this is the most efficiently costed of all of the classes, I believe. At level one, you actually do affect the board. It's not the most insane thing in the world, but you get a grizzly bear, right? You get a 2-2 two, two for two. So that's kind of okay, you know? I mean, it's a modest baseline, but it's kind of okay as a baseline, I think. When you level it up, it only costs one and a green to level it, so that's good. Because Cleric class, you, you'll recall from at the beginning of our discussion, costs three and a white to get it up to level two. So here you only have to pay another two, and then you get this cool sort of anthem 
that lets you put a counter on an attacking creature. So notice it doesn't put counters on all of your attacking creatures, right? You just pick one attacking creature, you put a counter on it. That's okay though, I think, especially when we care about counters. So we're sort of building up to a Curse of Predation. Curse of Predation, I'll read that to you. This was from a commander set. It's two and a green for an enchantment or a curse. Enchant player, whenever a creature attacks enchanted player, put a plus one plus one counter on it. This is kind of a sweet anthem type effect in green for a deck that wants to turn things sideways. Curse of Predation is, I think, too strong a card for petty nobility. I've run it in other environments at other points in time. It's kind of a feast or famine card, but when it works, boy, it, it works and it's extraordinarily powerful. So with Ranger class, we're building our own version of that on an installment plan. It's a much weaker version though, because we're only putting one counter on a creature, not like everybody automatically gets a counter. So it's more fair, but still powerful, I think. And then we only need another four to get to our ultimate here. And, um, you know, I don't know, that's cool. I, I don't know if this is correct or not, but for me, I've been sort of evaluating these classes, ignoring their final level, just as we often ignore the ultimate on Planeswalkers uh, when we're doing a kind of basic evaluation of them. Well, that may not be correct though, because Ranger class is two and two and four to cast and follow the upgrade path, and four is not crazy, right? So you, you may well get there. And when you do get there, you're generating card advantage in a way that green likes. So there we have it, the 13 cards I'm sticking in Petty Nobility from AFR. I'm excited. I think we got some cool tools here. What's my favorite tool? I think, I think Ranger class is super sweet. So I'm excited to play more with that card. And then you see a pair of goblins, which is the Trumpet Blast slash Dragon Fodder spell. I'm kind of unreasonably fond of the flexibility of that card. What are you most excited about from this set? And let me know what I missed and what else I should be looking at. Let's keep hanging out and chatting cube.